This is a Sunday talk by Thomas McFarlane entitled Introduction to the Center for Sacred Sciences Its Mission, Programs, and Teachings Recorded on Sunday, September 18, 2011 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So welcome, everyone, especially those of you who have never been here before or who maybe haven't been here in a while. And because it's the first Sunday of our year, we have a break during the summer, and we're starting up now until uh, next August. Uh, I thought it would be a good idea to give a, kind of a high-level overview of what the center is, what our mission is, what the services we offer are, what the teachings are, and who the teachers are, and kind of the whole package deal. So you get a big picture of what the center is and why you should support it. <laughs> so uh, the first thing we do, though, every Sunday is we have a short meditation. It's just about 10 minutes. And uh, one of the purposes for meditation, from the mystic's point of view, is to uh, help us realize the truth that is already here, but we normally overlook. And the reason we overlook it, the mystics say, is because our minds are distracted by all of the thoughts that are going on through our heads all the time, telling us what reality is, and that these thoughts are deluding us from seeing what's obviously true. So what meditation does is it helps us to see that in action, to see how our thoughts are arising and how they're deluding us, and by seeing that, the truth can then be revealed. So the instruction for the meditation is really very simple. It's to sit in a comfortable position and just let the body settle down in a relaxed but alert position and let your eyes just rest comfortably somewhere in front of you. You're not staring at something, but you're just letting the eyes relax just as the rest of your body is relaxing. And then the instruction is simply to pay attention to your breath. And of course, you will, uh, before too long, be distracted by thoughts either thoughts about the breath, about the meditation, about uh, what's happened in the past, about what might happen in the future, and so on. And the instruction is simply to notice that and then return the attention to the breath. So the breath is really a tool we're using to help become aware of how these thoughts distract us from what's actually happening in the present moment. So I'll ring this gong uh, once to get us started. And in about 10 minutes, I'll ring it twice, and then uh, we'll begin with the rest of the morning. So what is the center? What are we about? Why are we here? What do we do? 
Well, first of all, I'd like to start with just a brief sketch of the history of the center so you know kind of how it started and where it came from. Uh, we're fortunate to have one of its founders in the room today, Maggie, uh, sitting here. The center started back in 1987. It was started by Maggie and Joel Morwood and Amit Goswami. And uh, Joel had been living in uh, L.A., and Maggie and Amit invited him up to Eugene. They started the center, and uh, it started with just informal meetings in, in a living room and sort of organically expanded over the years as the needs arose uh, until we find ourselves here today. And a little bit of background about Joel. Uh, after uh, going to Vietnam and, and a brief stint as a, a Maoist revolutionary and then a career in Hollywood as an executive uh, in the movie industry, he ended up going on a mystical path, and that ended in his Gnostic awakening in 1983. He wrote a book about that, which is his spiritual autobiography, and it's called Naked Through the Gate. Over the years, there's been a community of students who have been attending the center, some of whom have awakened and are now teachers at the center as well. And I'll talk more about the, the various other ways in which the center's programs have evolved. Another thing I wanted to mention is the influence upon Joel that Franklin Merrill Wolf had. Uh, as part of Joel's path, if you've read his book, he describes how he went on a kind of pilgrimage around the western portion of the United States and visited various spiritual communities. And one of those places he visited was the ranch of Franklin Merrill Wolf, who is an American mystical philosopher. And he's written several books, and he lived at that time on the eastern slope of the Sierra Nevada mountains near Lone Pine, California. And when Joel went on his tour, he was very profoundly uh, taken by Dr. Wolf. One of the reasons was that he showed how reason and philosophy could be in the service of the spiritual path and, and ultimate awakening. Some teachings give the impression that thought is the problem. Insofar as we believe it, it can be a problem. But what Dr. Wolf helped Joel to appreciate more is that thought and philosophy can be a way of realization. Another thing was that Joel mentions how Dr. Wolf helped him appreciate more the huge treasure of writings that humanity has from all the different spiritual traditions across the world. Joel was familiar with some of them previously, but that really deepened uh, under the influence of Dr. Wolf. And that's where Joel spent about a year and a half writing his book, was on Dr. Wolf's ranch. That was a, a strong influence on Joel's teachings subsequently. And so, in a certain extent, the center uh, has that implicit influence from Dr. Wolf, which is one reason you see his photograph there on the back wall above Joel's. So, the center has a mission. There are three parts to it. The first part of the center's mission is to demonstrate that despite the outward differences among all the different religions of humanity, there is an inner esoteric or mystical core to them all that's testified to by all their mystics. These mystics, what they teach, as I'll discuss a little bit later, has a remarkable similarity across the traditions. So, even though on the exoteric doctrines, they might appear to be very different. 
If you read the mystics in these traditions, you find very similar things uh, testified to. Granted, they're in different language, naturally, because they are expressed in the context of different cultures and languages and traditions and so forth. But the principal ideas have a remarkable uniformity across all these different traditions in different areas of the world, across centuries of time. So separated by time and space and culture, there's this surprising uniformity of their testimony. And so that's something that the center tries to emphasize and teach and share with the world is that there is, despite these differences, this common universal core to the religions. The second part of the center's mission is to help foster a new worldview in which the truths that these mystics testify to and the truths of science can be seen as compatible with the same underlying reality. Now, just as the different religions have different outer expressions and, and doctrines, you also find that, that science has different paradigms and so forth. But the emphasis here is that at their core, these can be seen as compatible. And then finally, the third part of the center's overall mission is to help create, maintain, and foster a community of people who want to practice these teachings of the mystics in their own lives and go on retreats, for example, study the mystics, practice their teachings, transform their own lives, and realize this truth that they all testify to. So that's the mission of the center. That's why we're here. And then we have various services that are designed to accomplish the mission, manifest it in the world. So as far as demonstrating this common universal truth among the mystics, we do several things, one of which is we have these Sunday talks. Often the topic of a Sunday talk will be a specific teaching or question or issue uh, related to practice or, or some of the doctrines that some of these mystics talk about. And often the, the talk will be drawing from quotes from all the different mystical traditions to illustrate that all these mystics are really saying something very similar about whatever topic it is that's being discussed. So that's one context in which the center fulfills that mission of demonstrating the common universal truth. And those talks are often recorded. Some of them are on the internet. All of them that are kept anyway are put in the center's library and they're also uh, for sale. And so People who don't have the opportunity to come here in person and listen to these Sunday talks can nevertheless benefit from this as well. Also, Joel has published a book called The Way of Selflessness. And this is really a practical guide for anyone who wants to embark on a mystical quest. So it's really a summation of all of his teachings, emphasizing the practical side of it, practices such as meditation and so on that uh, an individual could undertake to try and realize this truth. And another thing I should mention is that the center tries to emphasize or present these teachings in a manner that is more suitable to our contemporary lives, uh, our modern contemporary lives. So a lot of these mystics were from many centuries ago, they were from other cultures, they were speaking in a religious context, and so 
The truth they're trying to express may not be immediately apparent through the words and, and language and idioms and so on that they used. So what we try to do is to interpret and present those teachings in a way that's more suitable for people in our modern culture. So another way we try and share and disseminate this common universal truth of the mystics is articles. So there are articles on our website, there are articles in our newsletter, and then there's our lending library. As Megan mentioned on Buck Street, which is where we used to meet on Sundays, there's a really marvelous library that has spiritual classics from all the different religious traditions. And so this gives someone on a spiritual path an opportunity to read for themselves the original texts of all these mystics and to investigate whether this claim that the center is making is true or not. Someone on a spiritual path often finds themselves, at least at different points on the path, particularly attracted to maybe one tradition or another, or one mystic or another. And so this provides really a, a giant smorgasbord of choices, uh, a huge buffet that you can go along and say, that's what I'm drawn to, that's what I'm hungry for, and then you can have a taste of that. So how do, we, uh, how do we help realize or uh, implement the other mission, which is to help develop a new worldview? Well, some of our Sunday talks uh, relate to that topic, as well as talks that are given at conferences. So Joel and I, for example, have given a few talks at the local chapter of the Institute for Noetic Sciences and we gave some presentations there. We've also spoken at the Science and Non-Duality Conference in uh, San Rafael. And so that's another way that we help foster a new worldview. The center also has an online journal called HOLOS, Forum for a New Worldview. And occasionally we have interviews there with interesting scholars of religion or other academics who do research that is relevant to this project of creating a new worldview. And then the library also has a role in helping foster a new worldview because there are also books on science in there, particularly science that is relevant to uh, the relationship between science and spirituality or science and mysticism. So there's a big section of books there that are relevant to that part of the center's mission. And then regarding maintaining a community of spiritual practitioners, this is an extremely important part of what the center does. And we have what's called a practitioners group for people who are serious about undertaking a spiritual path for themselves in a disciplined way. And so there's a group of practitioners who meet on a weekly basis to practice meditation, to go into the, the teachings in depth, and how to implement them in their own lives. It used to be that there was just one practitioner's group, but then over the years, we realized that it was more beneficial to have the people who have been in the practitioner's group for a number of years separated from the people who have just joined to benefit people who are just starting with the center and aren't familiar with our approach to teaching and so on. We've established what's called a foundation studies course, and so this is a year-long practitioner's group that focuses on introducing the student to all the basics of meditation and practicing precepts and the teachings at the center and so on and so forth. And then after that year, they join the, the regular practitioners group. 
So the other way is that the center has services related to its mission of fostering a, uh, a community of practitioners is meditation retreats. Usually there are two, sometimes three a year, and they're silent meditation retreats where typically anywhere from 15 to 25 of our practitioners go up to Cloud Mountain Retreat Center, which is in southwestern Washington. There's usually quite a bit of sitting meditation. There's some teaching. There's practicing of precepts. And it's an opportunity really to let go of everything else in our lives and really focus for several days on spiritual practice exclusively. Practicing in our daily lives is extremely important. Retreats also have an important role to play on a path. So that gives us an opportunity to do that. And also something new I wanted to mention is that this year the center is going to start offering a day-long meditation on one Saturday every month. Unlike the retreats, which are limited to members of the practitioners group, this is open to the public. This gives anyone an opportunity to go deeper into the practices, have some opportunity to, at least for a full day, have kind of a mini-retreat, you might say, and the benefit of exposure to some of the center's teachers in more of an intimate, practice-oriented context. And then finally, the newsletter. Where's Mora? She's the editor of our fantastic newsletter, and that comes out three times a year. And that also plays an important role in maintaining our community of spiritual practitioners, particularly people who are not uh, local here. People who either were members of our practitioners group and have moved away. People uh, maybe who weren't members of the practitioners group but attended lots of Sundays and feel connected to our community. Or people who just heard about us and want to maybe become more involved. They can subscribe to the newsletter, learn more about who we are and uh, what we're up to. So then the question arises, but uh, what really are these teachings that we're uh, disseminating here? So for those of you who aren't familiar with the teachings of the mystics, I'd like to share with you some of what I referred to earlier, the common universal truths that these mystics testify to, and a few quotes from the mystics to illustrate that. So first of all, all mystics agree that ultimate reality, whether you want to call it Allah, Brahman, the Tao, Buddha nature, God, it can't be grasped by our thoughts or expressed in words. Uh, it can't be written down in any text. So, for example, in the Upanishads it says, The Spirit Supreme is immeasurable, inapprehensible, beyond conception, never born, beyond reasoning, and beyond thought. In the Buddhist Lankavatara Sutra it says, Words and sentences are produced by the law of causation and are mutually conditioning. They cannot express the highest reality. The Christian mystic Dionysius says, That one which is beyond all thought is inconceivable by all thought. So that's a brief illustration of how these mystics from different times and different traditions are all saying the same thing, that this truth is beyond whatever you can think or, or write down or speak about. And the reason that we can't speak or think about this is that speech and thought 
create distinctions. Whenever I name this gong, that's implicitly distinguishing it from everything else. Otherwise, it would be meaningless. If I just said blah, you'd be saying, well, what is he talking about? It doesn't make a clear distinction. And so, uh, if I say gong, insofar as that means anything at all, it's dependent on making a distinction between a gong and everything else. So these distinctions, even though we can make them with thoughts and language, the mystics all say that they are nevertheless imaginary, and reality is non-dual. So even though the thought and language can make these distinctions, the distinctions aren't real distinctions. They're imaginary distinctions. The reality is non-dual or beyond distinction. So here are a few quotes to illustrate that. The Lankavatara Sutra again says, In essence, things are not two but one. All duality is falsely imagined. Shankara, who is a philosopher in the Hindu tradition, says, No matter what a deluded man may think he is perceiving, he's really seeing Brahman and nothing else but Brahman. The universe which is superimposed upon Brahman is nothing but a name. So I name this gong, and insofar as that's distinguished and you think the distinction's real, that's a kind of superimposition that veils the non-dual reality. Meister Eckhart, who was a Christian mystic, says, If we will see things truly... They are strangers to goodness, truth, and everything that tolerates any distinction. They are intimates of the one that is bare of any kind of multiplicity and distinction. And the Sufi mystic Rumi says, That oneness is on the other side of descriptions and states. Nothing but duality enters speeches playing field. So even though these distinctions are imaginary and the truth can never be captured by these words, the mystics, of course, speak and they give teachings. But these teachings are just pointers to the truth. So they can still give instructions and pointers to the truth even though the distinctions don't capture the truth. And one of the things that they say when the mystics point to the truth is that while the ultimate reality constitutes the true nature of everything, it itself is nothing. So in the Upanishads we hear neti neti, which can be translated as not this, not this. So if insofar as you latch on to any particular thing, well, it's not that. In other words, it's negating every distinction that you make to particularize anything in your experience. Neti neti. Lao Tzu says, the myriad creatures in the world are born from something, and something from nothing. Ibn Arabi says, he is not accompanied by thingness, and by he, he means God. He is not accompanied by thingness, nor do we ascribe it to him. The negation of thingness from him is one of his essential attributes. And Gershom Sholem, who is a Jewish scholar of Kabbalah, says, 
the hidden God, the innermost being of divinity, so to speak, has neither qualities nor attributes. <clears throat> you can't say anything about it, so in, in a sense it's nothing. But, <clears throat> it's not a mere nothing. It's not the nothing that you think of that, oh, well, that's just a, a vacuum. It's just this huge homogeneous void. It's this big abyss that's just uh, kind of the absolute nothing, you might say. But it's described as radiant with consciousness, with Buddha mind, with God, with pure spirit, primordial awareness, whatever you want to call it. It's the life of life. So as the Upanishads say, he is the eternal among things that pass away, pure consciousness of conscious beings. The Buddhist Huang Po says, all the Buddhas and all the sentient beings are nothing but one mind, besides which nothing exists. And St. Augustine says, the light by which the soul is illumined, in order that it may see and truly understand everything, is God himself. And Ibn Arabi says, he is the spirit of the cosmos, its hearing, its sight, and its hand. Through him the cosmos hears, through him it sees, through him it speaks. Through him it grasps, through him it runs. So this is, you might say, uh, another way of saying all of this is that not only is the ultimate reality transcendent, it's also imminent. It permeates everything, and it's the true nature of everything. Now the fundamental mistake, and this is another point that all the mystics agree on, the fundamental mistake that we make regarding these distinctions is taking them to be real. And particularly the distinction between self and other, I and world, subject and object. When this distinction, this fundamental distinction is taken to be real, this is the cause of all of our suffering. And we fall into what some mystics call a state of delusion. So the Buddhist Bokar Rinpoche says, the fundamental dysfunction of our minds takes the form of a separation between I and other. We falsely grasp at an I on which attachment grafts itself at the same time as we conceive of an other that is the basis of aversion. So we grasp onto the sense of me and then there are all these other things out there that we want or we don't want and then this is all predicated on this idea that there is a self separate from another. The Hindu saint Amanda Maima says, So long as the sense of me and mine remains, there's bound to be sorrow and want in the life of the individual. So as long as there's this division and we're trying to get things and trying to push things away, all of which is based on something that's false, if you're not aligned with reality, well, you're destined to get frustrated and to suffer. And the anonymous Christian author of The Cloud of Unknowing says, Every man has plenty of cause for sorrow, but he alone understands the deep universal reason for sorrow, who experiences that he is. So what's called this blind sense of being, this basic distinction between I and other, is really the cause of this sorrow. 
and the Muslim scholar Javad Nurbakesh says, as long as you are you, you will be miserable and impoverished. <laughs> that kind of sums it up. <laughs> now the good news is, is that the fact that these distinctions aren't real means that we're not truly separate selves and that our, in our true nature, we are this God. We are this ultimate reality, this Brahman, this Buddha mind, this Tao, this consciousness itself. So, for example, Huining, a Buddhist, says, our very self-nature is the Buddha. And apart from this nature, there is no Buddha. Amanda Mayima, again, says, God is one's very own self, the breath of one's breath, the life of one's life. And Meister Eckhart says, some simple people think that they will see God as if he were standing there and they hear. It is not so. God and I, we are one. So this truth, this ultimate reality, it's often veiled by these thoughts when we take them to be real. And so we can't grasp or realize this truth through thought. But the mystics all testify that it's possible to recognize or realize this in a way that is beyond thought. And we can do that in this lifetime. This is the reality that's already present. The Buddhist Yunman says, The time will come when your mind will suddenly come to a stop, like an old rat who finds himself in a cul-de-sac. Then there will be a plunging into the unknown with the cry, Ah, this! The Hindu, Lali Shwari, says, When the mirror of the mind becomes clear, I saw that God is not other than me. And this non-dual knowledge completely destroyed all thought of you and I. I came to know that this entire world is not different from God. And Gershom Shulam again says, It is in his own self, finally, he transcends the limits of natural existence, and at the end of his way, without, as it were, a single step beyond himself, he discovers that God is all in all, and there is nothing but him. So that's important, without a single step beyond himself. You don't have to leave what's already present, to discover this reality that's already present. And what happens? Well, the mystics all agree that once this realization takes place, that this brings freedom from suffering and freedom from death. In the Upanishads it says, When a man knows God, he is free. His sorrows have an end, and birth and death are no more. So what does that mean? Well, that's for you to find out. <laughs> what is suffering, Boka Rinpoche asks? What is death? In reality, they do not have any existence. In the emptiness of mind, there is no death. No one dies. There is no suffering and no fear. Abraham Abulafia says... When the false apprehension is negated from the heart of the enlightened ones, 
Then death shall be swallowed up forever, and God will erase tears from every face. Meister Eckhart testifies, This man lives in one light with God, and therefore there is not in him either suffering or the passage of time, but an unchanging eternity. And finally, all the mystics of all the traditions agree that their teachings should not be taken on faith, but should be tested in your own experience and realized for yourself. For example, Dogen, the Buddhist, says, Those who practice know whether realization is attained or not, just as those who drink water know whether it's hot or cold. Shankara says, The pure truth of Atman, which is buried under Maya and the effects of Maya, can be reached by meditation, contemplation, and other spiritual disciplines, such as a knower of Brahman may prescribe. And Jesus says, If you follow my teachings, then you're truly my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And by know the truth there, by the way, he means know in the sense of realize, not know in the sense of an intellectual knowledge. So all these mystics have this common universal truth that they testify to that is illustrated by all these quotes. And the center has summed this all up in a kind of concise form in what we call the five fundamentals. And these are the way in which the center tries to concisely express this unanimous testimony of the mystics. So briefly, these are Consciousness alone is absolutely real. So that's this basic idea that the ultimate reality is this consciousness, this Buddha mind, this primordial awareness, this non-dual life of my life, breath of my breath. The second fundamental is that ignorance of the real is the cause of the suffering. That the reason we suffer is because we confuse reality with illusion. We make these distinctions between self and other and take them to be real. And this is a kind of ignorance in the etymological sense of the word that we are ignoring the reality because we're being distracted by these dualistic thoughts that we take to be real. The third fundamental is that the end of this suffering comes by way of gnosis which is this uh, word that's used in the center as a generic term to refer to enlightenment, uh, realization, awakening, moksha. The fourth fundamental is the way of gnosis, is the way of selflessness. So the path to this realization or awakening is what's called the way of selflessness. Joel often says, if you were to take all the teachings of all the mystics, of all the traditions, and distill them all down to just one word, it would be selflessness. The selflessness is both the truth and the way that the truth manifests. So the truth is is that there is no separate self. There is no ultimate division between self and other. There's no reality to this self, which is why there's no birth or death. There's no self ultimately there that is born. So how could it die? So that's the truth that selflessness points to. 
And then the way in which it manifests in the world is selfless love and compassion. Because there is no separate self and a me to protect and defend against this and that, it, the natural manifestation is selfless love and compassion. So this is the way of selflessness. It's not only the way in which realization is attained, but it's the natural expression of realization, which brings us to the fifth fundamental. The way of selflessness is the very way in which consciousness perfectly realizes itself. So those are the five fundamentals. Another cornerstone, you might say, of the center's teachings, and this relates more to our practices in a concrete form, are what's called the four principles of the path. Any mystical path is governed by these four principles, attention, commitment, detachment, and surrender. So to begin either a practice or the path as a whole, the first thing you have to do, the first prerequisite to any practice or following a path is to start paying attention to what's going on. So as we did in the meditation at the beginning of the morning, we sat down to try and pay attention, to become more aware of what our mind is doing and to see what's going on. So this first principle is simply to pay attention. The second principle, commitment, expresses the fact that we have to have a commitment to continually do this. It's like working out in the gym, as Joel likes to say. You can't just go one morning and work out in the gym and expect to be all buff the next day. This has to be a commitment to a continual discipline practice. So you have to repeatedly do this with repeated practice of attention. We can make progress on the path. And with this commitment to attention develops a detachment from things. And so as we start to realize these truths, as we pay attention to what's really going on, we start to have insights into these truths that the mystics have testified to. We start to see this in our own experience. This isn't just a matter of belief or faith. This is a matter of going into our own experience, paying attention in a disciplined and committed way. Eventually, the fruit that this can bear is this insight into the truth of it. And as we develop a, a sense of the reality of this lack of true division between things, for example, if I know that my car is impermanent, and that's part of the fabric of my life and my knowledge, then I won't tend to be as attached to that car when it breaks down, when a rock hits the windshield and shatters it, when, or when anything else I have is lost or stolen or broken or what have you. So this detachment is a natural consequence of realizing bits of this truth. And then finally, the fourth principle is surrender. So at the very end of the path, this actually isn't something you can willfully decide to do, but it's something that nevertheless happens on the path is a natural surrender of the attachments, and particularly, the, ultimately, the attachment to oneself and that division between self and other. And so the four principles, attention, commitment, detachment, and surrender, are principles that manifest in a given practice and they also 
give a kind of uh, encapsulated overview of the entire path. Now, one way that practitioners at the center try to really develop these insights is through practices like meditation. But another important practice that we emphasize here at the center that I think it's fair to say is often neglected in other spiritual circles is the practice of precepts. And precepts, uh, one of the reasons maybe it isn't so popular in other places is that people tend to think, oh my God, don't you know, impose these morals on me and things like that. But that's really a misunderstanding of what these are about. The purpose of these precepts is not to make ourselves conform to some ideal or even worse, make others conform to our ideal, <laughs> uh, but rather as tools to help us become more aware of our actions, and in particular, our actions that have a selfish root and that lead to our suffering. And so the purpose of practicing these is simply to help us be more aware, just like the, the purpose of meditation is to help us become more aware. And most of us live householders' lives, so we don't have the opportunity to meditate, for example, for 10 hours every day as a monastic might. And so how do we take advantage of our activities throughout the day for the benefit of our spiritual practice? We don't want to have, okay, well, I, uh, I do my spiritual practice uh, for half an hour every morning when I meditate, and then there's the rest of my life where I just go on business as usual. Well, in order to make the whole rest of the day a spiritual practice, these precepts are extremely valuable because they help us become more aware of ourselves and our actions throughout the day as we engage in activities with other people. So here they are. Responsibility. Self-discipline. Harmlessness. Stewardship. Honesty. Integrity honor, sexual restraint, charity, and remembrance. So, for example, let's just take harmlessness. Not to injure or kill any being heedlessly or needlessly. So, you know, you've got a mosquito buzzing around and you just unconsciously just swat him and get all irritated. Well, the precept of harmlessness comes to mind. And again, this isn't about becoming some person who always bows to every mosquito or anything. This is about becoming aware of that just habitual tendency just to become irritated and want to just kill the thing so you can get rid of it. Notice that. Become aware of oneself. Oh, harmlessness. It helps me become aware of what I'm doing. And as we become more aware of these habitual actions that are undertaken unconsciously, usually for selfish reasons, we begin to have insight into how these selfish actions create suffering in our lives from moment to moment. How these little actions, every little thing we do, is really ways in which we're propagating this sense of separation and frustration with life, these little irritations, every single little thing that we don't like or resist, these are things we want to become aware of so we can see them and realize, well, I'm just creating suffering for myself. Why would I want to do that? And then you can start to relax and let them go. So that's what the precepts are about. 
And when we go on retreat, I should mention, we take five extra precepts to even deepen our practice further because retreat is this context where you can really deepen your practice even more. And so there, there's an opportunity to even go further with these precepts. And these are the more classical precepts of poverty, chastity, obedience, silence, and constancy. So, for example, poverty is to realize that in reality nothing belongs to me. So it's not that we go on retreat and uh, we give away all of our belongings before we go. It's just that we try to practice realizing that in reality all these things that we might have, like, oh, there's my, that's where I was going to sit during this this meditation (laughs) hall. they, They moved there. That was my... That's just an imaginative construction of a little space on a piece of floor that, you know, I claimed. And here I am making this drama in my mind about this totally fictitious thing. And so this is the way that that one of these precepts might function on a retreat. So a little bit about the teachers at the center. I wanted to mention that we have teacher guidelines. Some spiritual communities have had problems with teachers inappropriate relationships with students, for example, and uh, inappropriate relationships with money. And the center is very aware that it's a disservice to the truth and to the benefit of all people who are seeking the truth to have these kind of distracting events. And since teachers are representing the truth and trying to communicate it to people, it's to the benefit of the people and to the truth to, in a sense, get out of the way and not only be an example, but also to not distract the community by these kinds of dramas. And so some of these guidelines are intended to really be ways to express the fact that the teachings here are really intended to be of benefit to the students and to be in service of the truth. So some of the guidelines are that a teacher should stay true to the tradition, expressing in modern terms these classical teachings of the mystics that are found in all these different mystical traditions. And the teachers, in their capacity as teachers at the center, should keep the teaching spiritual. Now, some of the teachers here happen to be practitioners in uh, counseling, practitioners in the healthcare field. Of course, they have those roles as well, but in their capacity as teachers at the center, they are spiritual teachers that are giving spiritual guidance. The teachers here should admit ignorance when they don't know something. They should honor sources, you know, not claim as their own some teaching they actually derived from some other place. If they're making statements of fact, they should prepare to give evidence for that. The teachers here give their teachings freely as a labor of love. So none of the teachers here receive financial compensation for any of the teachings they give. This isn't about the teachers here making money. We're a nonprofit organization, and all the teachers here are teaching only because they want to serve the truth and people who want to realize the truth couple exceptions to that. One is if a teacher has expenses, like travel expenses, to go teach at another location, they can be reimbursed for that, of course. 
And also, if the teacher does have some personal financial need, it's acceptable for them to receive compensation, provided that that is made public. So, in other words, they have to be open about this. A similar kind of policy applies to sexual relations between teachers and students. So the teachers here are not celibate. They're not like priests in the Catholic Church here or something who are expected to be celibate. We're lay people. And if a teacher engages in a sexual relationship with a student, well, first of all, they need to be very careful about that because of the dynamics of the relationship. But second of all, it needs to be made public. So this can't be kept a secret. And that's to basically protect against some of the abuses that have taken place in other communities from happening here. And finally, the teachers should strive to, as we say, walk the talk. The teachers should endeavor to practice all the precepts and to promptly and openly admit if they ever have any transgressions. So we've discussed uh, what kind of services the center has, what our teachings are, now I'd like to wrap up with a little bit about who the people are that, for example, are the teachers. First of all, we have Joel. He's the spiritual director. He supervises all the teachers at the center and is really the, the primary teacher. And minister, by the way, if you want to get married or have a funeral in your family or something like that, Joel is empowered to officiate at such events. We have a core team of teachers that consists of Todd, Fred, and Matt. They are also ministers. And then we have other teachers and assistant teachers, such as myself and Clavon. Vip has served as an assistant teacher. Uh, oh, and mentors. Vip has been a mentor, and Rich has been a mentor. And the mentors, I should say, teach one-on-one -on -one with students in our distance studies program. There are some people who don't live in Eugene and don't have the opportunity to come here personally who nevertheless want to engage in this practice. And so we've set up this distance studies course, which has Joel's book as a textbook and a bunch of Joel's audio talks as part of the curriculum as well so that a person can go through what's essentially a self-guided course of study. And for anyone who chooses to enroll in that, we assign them a one-on-one -on -one mentor. And then there is a whole lot else that goes on at the center that's really behind the scenes. And I just want to take this opportunity to mention who those people are and what all of that is. Just so you know, uh, first of all, there's a board of directors, which is really the team of people ultimately responsible for what happens at the center. It appoints the spiritual director. The board also has to approve any teacher. Joel can nominate any person to be considered a teacher at the center, and the board has to approve that. Other people on the board of directors are Jennifer, who is the librarian. And this is a marvelous <coughs> library whose existence and development has been primarily due to Jennifer's efforts. And it's really a fantastic resource. In addition to books, there's also videos and audios not just of our programs and teachers, but also from other traditions. The other members of the board of director are Todd and Fred and Mike, myself, and Barb. Let's see. Barb is a director and the secretary. I'm the publications director. Mike is the facilities director. 
Fred is the activities director, and Todd is the special projects director. And Jennifer, as I said, is the library director. She also handles the membership, uh, things like the sales, uh, and is also our bookkeeper. She does a lot. We also have a staff of other people who aren't on the board who do a lot of the work to help keep the center running. There's, as I said, Maura, our fantastic newsletter editor. Megan, our newly appointed roving reporter. <laughs> we also have a team of copy editors, proofreaders for the newsletter. Maggie's one of them. Also Sheila and Karen. And Mark is handling the mailings. And then the library uh, is run by a whole staff of people helping Jennifer out there, including Barb and Shirley and Wesley and Sally and Jack. Sunday introductions. Uh, Megan was doing the Sunday introductions today. We also have Steve, Bill, and Mark helping us out with that. Our retreats uh, are coordinated by Jack, publicity by Ken, does things like puts ads in uh, weekly and things like that to let people know what we're doing in town here. And we have an office assistant, Maggie. So all of these people, most of whom are just volunteering their time because they recognize that the center is a wonderful place, a good cause, it's doing great work in the world. And we're a nonprofit. The teachers aren't paid. Most of these people aren't paid. I should say there's a small stipend that's given to the newsletter editor and also our bookkeeper gets paid. Other than that, everyone's just volunteering their time. So that is very much appreciated and I think is a testament to what these people believe in their hearts about the center, that it's worthy of volunteering their time. We don't have any outside sources of funding like parent organization that gives us money or huge grants coming in or anything like this. We're really kind of a grassroots organization. So we really depend on the generosity of donations on Sundays as well as donations from our membership. People, um, if they become part of the practitioners group, we ask them to become a member of the center, which means they make a commitment to donate something every month, what we call a pledge. It can be whatever amount they can afford. The teachings are given without any financial barriers to anyone. And that's an important policy we have. Nevertheless, we ask that if you can afford to donate something, please do because in order to continue what we're doing and to expand what we're doing and fulfill this mission, we do need money to uh, cover our expenses and to continue our operations. Since we are a tax-deductible organization, if you want to make a donation and want a receipt, you can check with Jennifer about that or write a note on your check or so on that you want a receipt for this. All right. Well, thank you all. Thanks for coming, and have a wonderful day.